I am so excited uh, to uh, welcome this morning. Uh, we have some special guests in town with us here at Grace Point, uh, Pastor Rob and Alicia Olmstead. That are it's actually this is kind of special because this is my sister and her husband. And so, would you guys thank them for being here with us this morning? They're over here. There you go. Wave up. There you go. They're not shy. I don't know what they're doing. But uh, uh, so Rob's going to get up here. You're going to tell he's not shy here in just a second. But uh, uh, Rob and Alicia, you guys, uh, if there's um, yeah, anybody have just some good, not the bad ones, all right, but some good childhood memories? Anybody? All right, got some good childhood memories. I, I'll always remember the first time that Alicia brought Rob into our home, and he just he just has so much joy for God. And uh, um, in fact, it even made me like my sister more. We were having some struggles, you know, at that point in our life. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. But uh, um, I'm so thankful for them and them being here with us this morning. If you're a guest today, uh, we've got little blue cards all behind the chairs. If you'll fill one of those out, we would love to connect with you more, either over at the picnic after this or uh, just over the phone or something this week. And so fill out some info, if you will, for us. Uh, we'll also give you a blue t-shirt out at the Next Steps table. Uh, that's just our present, kind of our gift to say, hey, thanks for coming today, if you'll turn that little blue card in. So thank you guys so much for being here. I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we're going to get into the Word, jump into the Word this morning. Uh, we'll be in Luke 15 uh, today, and uh, I want to pray for Rob as he gets ready to come up. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you so much, uh, God, just for all the things, uh, God, that we get a chance to do as your church, and I thank you so much. Uh, God, to be a part of a church, uh, God, that just loves to worship you and finds joy, God, just in getting together. And uh, God, I just thank you for everything that you did last week at VBS. I thank you for everything coming up uh, this, uh, this month in July, uh, where we just have an opportunity, God, just to continue to build community and honor you, God, uh, by what we say and do. God, we want to honor you right now by getting into your word. And so, Father, would you speak to us through your word? Would you speak to us through Rob today. We love you, Jesus. We ask all these things in your precious and holy name. Everybody said? Amen. Would you guys give a big, warm, Grace Point welcome for Pastor Rob? Thanks, Reagan. Hey, by the way, Reagan, if you will uh, hit your shots, rebounding won't be so important. <laughs> oh, sorry, man. I didn't know that was going to land like that, Reagan. So, uh, yeah, actually, Reagan talks about, you know, uh, me being introduced to his family. I remember the day I met Reagan. I remember the day I, I, uh, Alicia brought me over to their house in Oklahoma City, and I came in the front door, and just off the front door to the right, there was a, 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 a sort of the, the formal dining room, and Reagan had a school project. I think, what, what grade were you in, Reagan? Was it fifth or sixth grade? He had a school project, and he had to, it's one of those projects where you build your country, or whatever. It was a social studies project. And he was so excited about it. And he had his glasses on. He's like, hey, 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 Rob, um, you want to come see my social studies project? It's really cool. I built this country. And, uh, and I'm just amazed that that's the guy who's preaching to you. So, <laughs> so listen, we love Reagan desperately. We love Grace Point desperately. We are so thankful for what God is doing here. And it is always, always, always a joy always a joy to be with you. It's, it, I really can't describe it, how we rejoice over what God is doing here, because it is so amazing, and it's so special. In fact, I think today, as we kind of dig into this passage, I want us to feel the joy of what's happening here at Grace Point a little bit. 
if we can do that. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. We're going to talk about three parables that Jesus tells. And one of them, if you've been in church any time at all, will be maybe the most famous parable of all. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. If you've been around, we're going to dig into that. I think it's about a lot more than just one son because there's two. But we're going to get to that. That's the last one. We're going to hit the first two really quickly. But we're going to, uh, even before we jump into any, any of those three, we're going to talk about the story within which all those other stories sit. It's a lot of stories, all right? We're going we're gonna to get there. But Jesus in all of this is taking the world as it was known at that time, and he's turning it upside down. Because the kingdom of heaven, it really is upside down, right? If you want to be strong, what are we told to be? Weak, <laughs> right? If we want to find our lives, what do we have to do? Lose it, Right? We can be, uh, we can hunger and thirst after righteousness, and then we'll be filled, but we still hunger and thirst after righteousness, right? We can be filled while we hunger and thirst at the same time. The kingdom of heaven, it almost is counterintuitive to our natural, sinful, bent ways of our lives. And Jesus is going to unpack this in this message in Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, click them on, open them up whatever you do, and really there are a couple of things Jesus is doing here. He, he's actually, we're going to define this in a moment, but he's really speaking to two audiences here, and he's going to want, he's, he's going to comfort the disturbed, and he's going to disturb the comfortable. He's going to comfort the disturbed, and he's going to disturb the comfortable. And I pray that in some ways God will do that, allow that to happen in our hearts here today. Let's pray. Father, I just need your help today. And we need your help today. And we declare that to you, Lord. We recognize that outside of you, we have nothing. So we ask you to help us as we open your word that you would appear to us out of your word, God. Take these stories and make them come alive to us today, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. So we're going to start as we look at things that were lost and things that were found, and we're going to, I, want to, I want to explain to you the story within which these other three stories are told. Okay, it's the setting. The setting of these three stories. Right there in the first two verses of Luke chapter 15, you begin to see this. It says, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to hear him. All the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to hear him. This is the disturbed. In, the, in that day and time, there were, uh, there, it was all religious. Everything about life centered around religion. There was no kind of like, hey, I'm just okay, atheist, don't have religion, a natural, secular. There was no secular world. It was all a religious world. And, and everyone was either disturbed because they knew they couldn't measure up or had figured out a way to measure themselves up, and if it kind of dropped into those two camps. So you had this, these sinners and tax collectors who knew they couldn't measure up. They knew they were failing all the time. They're the disturbed. And Jesus wants to speak comfort to the disturbed. But there's a second group, verse 2. And both the Pharisees and the scribe, the Pharisees and the scribes, they began to grumble to themselves, saying, this man receives sinners, and he eats with them. Here's the comfortable. Here's the comfortable. And Jesus wants to disturb the comfortable. And so he's speaking to both groups, both those who are disturbed and both those who are comfortable. The Pharisees, 
Sometimes they get a bad rap. I, I, they, they, they deserve it most of them. Jesus reserves his harshest words in the Gospels for the Pharisees. The Pharisees were this group of people in the world there that Jesus almost set his ministry up against as a contrast. My ministry is wholly different than that. But they weren't necessarily bad people. They were people who loved the law of God and wanted to work all that they could to, to keep the law of God. So they would do things like if the law said things like, hey, uh, you should remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, the Sabbath law. You should not work on the Sabbath. They said, oh, well, we don't want to work on the Sabbath. And what does it mean to work in an agrarian culture? To plow the ground is to work, right, in the field, to plow the ground. And so they would say, you know what, we want to be careful. We don't want to get anywhere near working. So, you know, if you drag a chair across the floor on a dirt floor, you are parting the earth. And so to drag a chair across the floor on the Sabbath is work. And so we don't drag chairs across floors on the Sabbath. Okay. See how crazy that is? But it didn't come out of, it didn't come out of like a hatred for God. No, no. They wanted to keep the law. And actually everyone in the world around them saw those guys who absolutely were devoted to the law as the righteous, holy ones who had kind of who had measured up. So you've got the disturbed, the sinners and the tax collectors who know they can't measure up. And then you've got the righteous who are measuring up because of their own effort towards the law. That's these two groups. And Jesus is speaking to both of them. In fact, we don't know this exactly from the text, but, but the, um, the, the, the picture that I want to paint for you today is it would have been very, very common in Jesus' day, for Jesus to come into town, or any great teacher, a great rabbi who kind of rolled into town, to be invited into a, to, to have dinner with someone at their home. And so they would invite him to dinner, and he would come to dinner, and since it's a small town and word gets around, everybody would know that it happened. There would be some who were invited to the dinner to sit down at the table with the rabbi, and they'd get to be right there at the table. But then, if this guy was important enough and had caused enough of a stir, like the whole town would come. And they would gather and they'd pack into the house and be along the back wall. And I think the picture that we see here in Luke chapter 15, those just a couple of verses, paints this picture of Jesus being invited into the home of sinners and tax collectors. So he's invited into the home of the disturbed and he's, he accepts it. He says, yeah, I'll sit down at the table with you. And he sits down at the table and he begins to talk to them. Well, crowding along the back wall is everybody else who didn't get a ticket. But they're going to come in and they're going to hear what he has to say and among those are the Pharisees and the scribes gathered along the back wall. And they begin to grumble. They begin to grumble. Verse 2 says, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. So they're grumbling about who he is. And Jesus picks this up. Jesus picks this up and begins to tell three stories. You see, the Pharisees are really asking a question. I think it's a really great question. They're really asking the question, what kind of man is this? What kind of person are you, Jesus? They're asking that question. What kind of person are you, Jesus? He eats with tax collectors and sinners. He can't be holy. But yeah, we've heard great things about him. But he eats with tax collectors and sinners. What kind of person are you, Jesus? And they're asking this question. Jesus picks up on the fact that they're asking this question, and he answers with three stories, the third of which may be the best story of all, of all the stories that Jesus told. So we're going to dive in those three stories. Each one of those stories has um, really three elements that are all the same. There's something that's lost. There's something, that, that thing which is lost is found. And then there's a big party. 
And you see this repeated in all three of the stories. So let's jump in. We're going to run through the first two really quick. But what I want you to see is Jesus is answering the question, what kind of person am I? What kind of person am I with all these stories? So we'll jump into the first one, the story of the sheep. Here we go in verse 3. And he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, rejoicing with them, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. So here's the picture. A, a shepherd, something they understood and could recognize. He's got a hundred sheep, and he's pulling them together at the end of the day, and he notices that one or, one's gone. What's he do? He leaves the 99 who are coming into the fold, and what's he do? He goes out and finds the one. He leaves, and Jesus is teaching us that he will leave. He will sacrifice to find the lost. Jesus will sacrifice and give things up. What kind of person is he? He's one who sacrifices to find the lost. And can I tell you today, Jesus has already done this for you. He gave up everything. He stepped out of heaven, walked earth as a man, suffered indignity. His friends rejected him. His family rejected him. He was uh, unrighteously convicted to execution on a cross that he didn't deserve. He left all that was comfortable and sacrificed to find the lost. This is what Jesus does. He leaves areas of comfort to go after the lost. So he's saying this about who he is. But then he really, um, in verse 7, he begins, as he's speaking to those who are around the table who are uh, distressed, he begins to speak to the ones along the back wall who are comfortable. Verse 7, he says this. He says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, this is a shot across the bow. This is a shot across the bow to the guys standing on the, on the back wall who have ordered their lives so they need no repentance. They don't break the law. They know the law. Inside out, they don't break it. And here's this rabbi coming in saying, Heaven rejoices more over one who is lost, one sinner, than it rejoices over 99 who don't need, repents, who have kept the law. There's actually an old uh, Jewish saying that when absolutely kind of, he's turning things upside down, an old Jewish saying that the rabbis or that the uh, uh, Pharisees and scribes certainly knew, and probably the rest did, and said this, said, there is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. That was, that, was the, that was the religious idea of the time. There is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world, when they are destroyed, when they get what they deserve. That's what religion is. And Jesus has taken that and turning it upside down. So the disturbed who are around the table, the sinners are like, what? And the Pharisees along the back wall are beginning, their, their anger is beginning to rise a little higher because Jesus says, I will sacrifice to go after the lost. Keep going. The next, the next parable the, is the story of the coin. Verse 8. Or what woman, 
If she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search for it carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I have lost. That's maybe a little bit hard for us to understand. It's not that hard, but you know, it's a coin. Like I think there's like 27 cents that fell off bound between my uh, bedside table and my bed. And I can see it under the bed, but it's just not worth bending down to get it. How many of you are like that, right? Come on, admit it. It's true. It's like I get upset when people give me change nowadays. Like, I don't want that. Keep it. You know, you know a coin, how is a coin worth turning the house over for? Well, in the day, in that day, wealth wasn't kept in nickels and dimes and dollar bills. Wealth was kept in wheat and sheep and other things like that. You didn't have currency. And so if this lady had been storing up currency, she was storing up for something. They were going on a trip, or maybe it was a, a, a dowry or something. It was, it was for something significant, and part of it had been lost, and so it was unbelievably valuable. It could have represented years of work, that one coin. So what did she do? She turns the house upside down. Turns the house upside down until she finds it. How long did it take her? Well, we don't know, but she didn't stop until she finds it. Tells us that in verse 8. She kept going until she finds it. Jesus has already said that I'll sacrifice to find the lost. He's also answering and saying, I will relentlessly seek the lost. I will relentlessly seek the lost, and I will not stop until it's found. I'll leave places of comfort, and I'll sacrifice for the lost. And then he's answering, I will relentlessly seek the lost. This is the kind of person that Jesus is. Just to tack on this message to those on the back wall, verse 10 it says, And in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents, who repents, who turns to God. There's joy among the angels over one sinner who repents. Again, I, I can just imagine this little room, dimly lit room, that Jesus is sitting and eating dinner, and he's sharing this story of the coin with those around the table, and then he casts his glance towards those on the back wall who are comfortable in their own righteousness. They have no need to repent. This is what's happening in this story. What's happening is this story moves along. Then we get to the, the, the last story, the third story, this kind of ultimate story, this most beautiful story. It's maybe the most told story of all the parables that Jesus has told. If, you, if you've been in the church any time at all, like I have, I grew up in the church. You, if you were a kid and you're old enough of like my age, like you probably saw this on a flannel graph somewhere. Anybody remember flannel graphs? Okay, there's a couple. It's like a PowerPoint for a different generation. Except, well, I don't know, like we're beyond PowerPoint now, maybe like, I don't know, Insta picture or something. I don't know, right? So it was like a different way of communicating. But you've probably seen, you probably heard this story. I want us to dive into it today and hear. Maybe you'll hear the same thing you've heard. Maybe you hear something new. But listen to this story because it is a radical departure from the world the way it was seen then and the world that we walk in today is a radical departure from that. Here we go, verse 11. And he said, Jesus said to them, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided the wealth 
between them. I'm just going to stop right there. There's a, there's a father. He's, a, he's obviously got some wealth. We see later he has servants and some things like that. So he's obviously a wealthy father, and he's got two sons. Now, um, by the Jewish law of the day, these two sons, the older son would, uh, uh, two-thirds of the inheritance went to the older son. One-third went to the younger son. And the younger son one day comes to the father and says to him, Dad, I want mine now. And we could probably see that. Like, we could understand that. There's been movies about things like that, you know. We could probably get that. But I want you to know, this is a radical statement that the younger son is making towards his father. It means a whole lot more in the Jewish day than it would even mean today. See, to give him a third of his inheritance, to give him his inheritance, the father was literally giving up his own level of security. Remember, we already said that wealth wasn't maintained in a 401k or it wasn't maintained in a bank account. No, there was land, there were property, there were uh, livestock that had to be sold off. They were no longer the property of the family any longer. And that's what happened when the father gave that to his son. That's what the, the son is saying to his father. I want mine. I don't care what happens to you. I don't care if this family continues to survive. I don't care. I want mine. Right? But it's even deeper than that. There were servants who worked this land. And so for the whole community, there were people who lost their jobs, who would have lost their job because this young man was selfish and wanted his. Right? It affected the community, not just the family, but the community. It affected everything around him. The selfish, bratty young man says, Dad... Give me mine. I'm tired of this. He rebelled against his dad. He said, give me my, what's mine. I want you to see here, there is unbelievable grace from the very beginning, even in this story. Verse 12, the father, younger, younger son says, Father, give me what he has. And then look what the father does at the end of verse 12. And he divided his wealth between them. He did it. He did it. I want you to know, he, the father didn't have to do that. Let me tell you what he should have done if he followed the law like the guys on the back walls thought he should do. If he followed the law, this is from Deuteronomy chapter 21. Here's what the, the father's right was. It says this, If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them. He will not even listen to them. Then his father and his mother shall seize him, seize the son, and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of the city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all of Israel will hear of it. You should remove this evil person from you. Take him out to the city gates and, stone, and kill him. And shame him. Everybody should hear about his shame. That's what the father's right was. You see that? The father could have said, nope, no. Let me tell you how this is going to go. I'm going to seize you, take you out, out front, and we're going to kill you. The father wouldn't do it. He had too much love for his son. He wouldn't do it. He said, I'm going I'm to suffer for this son. So he divided the wealth, and he 
gave it to his son. Of course, what happened? His son went to a distant country and squandered his estate with loose living. You see that in verse 13. But it got worse. And now in verse 14, now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him out into his fields to feed the swine. He's already lost everything. And now a famine hits, and there's nothing, there's no one even to help him. So he gets the lowest of the low jobs. There's tons going on in just this little bitty verse that he goes, and all that's left for him is to feed the pigs. Now, for a Jewish man to, to, be, to be serving pigs was the, uh, the most horrible, degrading thing that could ever be imagined. Pigs were the most unclean of animals. You didn't touch them. You didn't get near them. You'd never find a pig in a Jewish village. You wouldn't find it. And now he's in a far-off country in a foreign land. Now he's serving pigs instead of in the place of honor in the home. This is how far he's fallen. This is how far he's fallen. And it actually says, that he goes on to say, verse 16, and he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything. There was nothing to help this boy, this young man. Nothing, no one to help him, and he was longing to eat the, even the, the pod the piece of food that the swine were eating. Now, that pod in the original language, it's actually uh, the, the pod of the carob tree. Uh, any of us probably know what a carob tree is, but it was, nobody ate these. <laughs> the car- carob was a kind of a, a tough uh, pod with some really hard beans in it that would fall off the tree when they were ripe, and they would just throw them to the pig because they weren't really worth anything else. That was the carob pod. And actually, there was another um, saying in Jewish history that said, we said this, listen, when Israel is reduced to the carob tree, they become repentant. When Israel is reduced to the carob tree, they become repentant. Many around that table, around the back wall would have known that saying, when Israel's reduced to the carob tree, they become repentant. What Jesus is painting the picture for those both at the table, yeah, you may be at the bottom. You've hit the bottom. And for the people along the back wall, he's saying, look at this person. They've hit the bottom. They deserve death. They deserve everything they're getting. The people on the back wall, they're thinking in their minds, they deserve everything they're getting because they've broken the law again and again and again. He's painting this picture of somebody who's absolutely at the bottom, has brought it upon themselves and deserves all that is coming to them. In a lot of ways, I mean, I'm standing here today in a church. I've, my wife and I have served on the mission field for 13 years and pastored a church before that. And, I mean, I've been a professional Christian most of my life, for crying out loud. I'm that guy. I'm that guy. I've fallen on my face. And I don't deserve anything. Tim Keller says this. This is true for all of us. I want us to hear this today. Tim Keller says, you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. So the father graciously gave up his own security so that this young man would go away and find that really all he needed, he had all along. That's what he does and what the Father is leading us to. So 
today, if you don't realize Jesus is all you have, hear that today. We're laying down, face down. The sun begins to turn in verse 17. He says, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's uh, hired men have more than enough bread? But here I am dying of hunger. Verse 18, I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you and in in heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. He makes a decision. He goes, I got to go back. I got to go back. And I'm going to beg mercy of my father just to let me be a hired hand so I have something to eat. I don't want to be a son again. I can't be a son again. I don't deserve to be a son again. Maybe I'll go back and he'll make me. He'll let me, allow me to be a servant. Now I'm going to jump out of the prodigal son story and back into that little dimly lit room with the Pharisees and scribes on the back wall and the sinners around the table where Jesus is giving these stories. Because the Pharisees on the back wall, their blood was starting to boil a little bit with the first story of the sheep and the coin and talking about the rejoicing in heaven, right? Blood was starting to boil. But now they're going, okay. Okay, Jesus, I see where you're going here with this story because there was actually another parallel story to this prodigal son story that's been told over the centuries in the church. There was another parallel story in Jewish rabbinical tradition, but it didn't look exactly like this story. In fact, the beginning is very much the same, but the end is very much different. In the rabbinical story, this old story that all the guys on the back wall would have known said there was a young man and he was rebellious and he went away and he squandered everything. And his father, when he had squandered everything, his father went and got him, redeemed him by paying off his debts, but then punished the son, drug him back into the family and made him a slave. So they were setting up this religious system, and the religious system of the day was that, yes, there can be repentance. If, the, so if you'll somehow turn and come to repentance, what waits for you is justice. Like, you're going to get what you deserve, and maybe you'll be brought in as a second-class citizen or a third- or fourth-class citizen. You'll be, because of what you've done, you're going to live a life of bondage. You're going to get what you deserve, and it's going to cost you something for the rest of your life. That was the religious system. So the guys standing on the back wall, the Pharisees and scribes are going, okay, you're getting a little crazy with the first two stories, but I see what you're doing here. I see what you're doing here. You're going to talk about what it really means to be found. Okay, we can go with you for a minute. And Jesus is about to upset all of it. All of it. Because he's going to turn the whole thing on its head. Here we go. Verse 20 says this, And he got up and he came to his father, Back in the story, the young man face down on the ground. And he got up and he came to his father. But while while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. There's something in this story that would lead us to believe that the father is watching, waiting, looking down the road, waiting for the return of the son. Will it be today? Will it be today? I don't know. Will it be today? The next day, will it be today? Will it be today? He's watching and he's waiting. And when, and from a long way, the son doesn't even have to get close to him. He sees the son coming. And what does he do in verse 20? He saw him coming. He felt compassion. This thing rose up in the father. 
I don't know if you've ever, as a parent, just had this thing that happens in you when you see your kids, this thing rises up in you. I don't even know how to describe it. We've got two kids, and sometimes there's this thing that happens in me. I turn crazy, right? Because I love my kids so much. This happened to the father as he sees his child coming back to him, and it rises up in him. And this is what he did. He ran to him. Now, this was not a man who ran. He would be well-known in the community. This man didn't run. He kind of glided down the path, right? And the world sort of orbited around him and moved out of his way, right? But what is this passage says he... In fact, for a man in those days who would have had to actually pick up these long gowns that they wore because it was hot, and they picked those up, hitched those up, and run, bearing his legs, it would have been unbelievable, um, embarrassing, shameful even that he was doing that. But he sees a son, he pulls up his garments, and takes off down the road to get to his son. And what happens when he gets there? He ran to him, and he embraced him, and he kissed him. I want you to see there's this... Uh, this picture of the son, dirty, I want you to see him. Dirty, stinky, smelly, wearing rags, doesn't have anything left. He's ruined it, he, and everything about him he deserved. He earned it, every bit. Every, all the filth that he's carrying, all the shame he's carrying, he earned all of it. And the father sees him and runs to him, and then it says that he embraced him and he kissed him. Now that word embrace is a really thick word in the Greek language. Um, it's also fun to say. It's epipipto. Can you say that with me now? Say it with me. Epipipto. Now say it real loud. Now say it louder. Epipipto. And it literally means like, uh, like, like a bear hug. Like the father ran up and tackled him and embraced him with all he had. And it literally, if you translate it literally, it means fell upon his neck. Like he took, he gave everything and, and wrapped this young man up. He epipiptoed him. Now, Beach Week is coming up, and there will be no epipiptoing. I just want us to know, right, Reagan? No, that's your new thing. This is no epipipto. All right, so, so, so the father ran and embraced his son. Tears flowing down his face began to intermingle with the dirt and the filth on his son. It's, it gets better, y'all. It gets better. So he ran. He felt compassion. He embraced him. He kissed him. And so, so the son, you can imagine the son all the way back dragging his tail all the way back. He's been rehearsing this uh, speech he has for his dad. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I'm no longer worthy. And he begins in verse 21. The son begins to give his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the, son, the father cuts him off. You remember? He had decided to say, please make me one of your servants. He cuts him off. The father doesn't allow him to say this. Verse 22, but the father does this. Look at verse 22. The father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Out here, far away from the house, the servants have run out following the master going, what's going on? And they see, and he's there tackled on the ground, hugging his son. And he says to the servants, go, 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 go. Go back in the house. Get my robe, the best one. Bring it out. Get my ring that says, this is my family. Bring it out. Put it on his finger. Put new shoes on his feet. We're going to clean him up out here because when he goes in there, it's as though nothing ever happened. That's what Jesus is saying. 
I'm going to fully redeem you. You don't, you, don't, you don't come into the house as some kind of second class. I'm not going to drag you through the, the, the waiting people watching the servants in the town to go, yep, we thought you'd blew it. No, no, no. He fully restores. And while there was this old system set up against, if you repented, then there was justice and punishment for your uh, sin. You got what you deserved in slavery. Jesus flips that on its head and said, I'm establishing a new religious system that says, I accept you as you are. The father ran out to the son as he was. And the son, that brought repentance to the son. He said, dad, forgive me. Forgive me. It is Jesus' kindness that leads us to repentance. It's that he has already paid the price, and all, while we were yet sinners, he died for us. He didn't wait for you to get good enough to die for you. He already has, and it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. And then when we repent and we turn back to him, we have full we are no longer slaves. He didn't bring us on a slave. He puts the best robe on us, puts the ring on our hand, and brings us out back in full, in full restoration, full restoration. Jesus answers. He's already said, I'm the kind of person who leaves and sacrifices to find the lost. I'm the kind of person who relentlessly seeks after the lost. And finally here, he sets up a whole new religious system, and he answers, what kind of person am I? I will receive and restore that which was lost. I will receive and restore the lost. He does that. Verse 23, you see this story happen again. And bring the fatted calf, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to be merry. He throws a big party. These three stories all end in what? A party, thank you. They all end in a party. I want you to see something about that party, though. All three of those stories end in a party, and the party is not just for the one who found the coin or the one who got the sheep, but they invite everybody into the party. And the whole community begins to party. The party is communal. Nobody parties alone. Anybody party alone? I don't know. So nobody parties alone, right? Nobody parties alone. No, this is for us together. And can I tell you, listen, if you don't get anything else, get this today. Get this today. On this side of heaven, right now, what's happening here at Grace Point Fellowship, right now, this is the party. This is the party. This is where the community comes together to rejoice over that which was lost has been found. This is where we celebrate, why we worship that which is lost has been found. And so it causes us to celebrate. It causes us to worship. This is the party. Do you believe that? This is the party. We've been invited into it. But the story doesn't end there because there's another brother. In fact, I think uh, the more I've studied this, there's this unbelievable story of the younger son that gets all the publicity in this, gets all the telling in this story because it is earth-shattering and it is changing. But I think Jesus was telling us more about the older son maybe than even the younger son because there's another brother see what happened to him in verse 25. Now the older son was in the field, and when he came, and he heard so this ruckus is happening, he came and approached the house, and he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And the servant said to the older son, he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because it received him back safe and sound. 
Verse 28 says, he became angry and was not willing to go in. The older son was angry. His, son, his brother had come back. Dirty. Remember, he was there. He lived through it. The selling off of the third of the property, the laying off of the servants, the, 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 the stories that came back from the distant land about how your brother is blowing it. He lived through all of that. And he became angry. No, no, no. He got what he deserves. And now this, he, he, he took everything he, and squandered it. He deserved to be laying face down with the pigs. And you bring him back? And you throw a party for him? Rage begins to pour out of the older son. But look, grace still from the father. Verse, uh, 20, verse 29. The, the older son became angry and was not willing to go in. But listen to this, second half. His father came out. His father came out to him. Just like the father came out to the younger son, the father came out to the older son. He came out to him and began entreating him. Hey, Come in, but look at the rage that pours out of the son. Verse 29, but he, the older son, answered the father and said to, his, said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a kid that I might be merry with my friends. But when this son of yours who came, who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed at the fattened calf for him, how could you do that? He deserved everything he got and you're just gonna act like it never happened? The guy standing on the back wall, this is who they were. They were enraged by this story. You sit and you eat and drink with sinners and tax collectors, Jesus? How can you do that? They get what they deserve. We get what we deserve because we never break the law. Their whole life was built upon what they deserved. They had decided that they had ordered their lives to, to be worthy of God, and so they ordered their lives so they, they were, and so how can anybody who didn't do what they did be worthy of God? But Jesus is saying, the kingdom of heaven is upside down. The gospel that Jesus gives us is upside down. The only way you'll ever be worthy of the gospel is to admit you're completely unworthy of the gospel. The only way you'll ever be worthy of the gospel is to admit you're completely unworthy of the gospel, not because of anything you've done, not because of any law that you've kept, how many times you came to church, how many good things you've done more than your bad things you've done. None of that makes you worthy. The only thing that makes you worthy is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we come to him saying, we're not worthy. Will you cleanse us? I struggle with this story a lot growing up. Uh, if you're like me, I was in church my whole life. Am I the older son? Am I the younger son? I want you to know today, we're all the younger son. We've all rebelled. We all need him. And we can all be, we can all be the older son. We can all become the older son and think we've begun to do something on our own. Jesus calls us all back to him. This question was asked for the people on the back wall. What kind of person are you, Jesus? He said, I will sacrifice to find the lost. I will relentlessly seek the lost. And I will receive and restore the lost. The story ends on kind of a cliffhanger. There in verse 31 and 32, Father goes to, goes to the older brother and says, come back in. Come back in. We don't ever see that the older brother comes back in. We don't know. 
if he entered the party or not. Will you enter the party? Will you come back to him today, no matter where you're at in that story? The story is certainly about who God is, but there's a moment in the story in verse 20 when it, it's a hinge, pen for, hinge, hinge point for the story. Verse 20, this younger son who's got his face in the dirt, verse 20 says, and he got up and came to his father. He got up and came to his father. And we're going to end right there. What kind of person are you? Do you think you're worthy? Do you think you're unworthy? Either one, the Father calls you to himself. Will you get up and come to the Father and admit, I'm not worthy? Only you're worthy. And will you give your life to him? And if you've already done that, are you a person like Jesus? Will you leave comfort to seek the lost? Will you relentlessly, continually seek the lost? And will you receive people and work to see them restored? And we let this place be a place where that happens. Father, we pray and we ask for your help right now. Lord, would you be the one who brings conviction? Or would you be the one who draws? Lord, only by your spirit, Lord. We ask that you'd be at work right now. The worship team is going to sing a song. Right now, they're going to lead us to that party, that rejoicing in what God has done. Right now, even as they begin to sing, if God is calling you back to himself, would you just come to the front, take one of the pastor's hands and say, God's calling me. They'll help, they'll take it from there. You don't have to know what that means even. God's calling me back. My father's calling me back. They'll take it from there. Would you do that today? Because we're all the younger son and we're all the older brother. We're all that. But God calls us all back. He went out to both of us. He loves you today.